I'll be reading Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of the word that was just read to us, and we pray that you would now imprint in goodness and in kindness its truth in our hearts. We ask that we would submit ourselves to you and what you have shown us and will show us through your word. Our Father, we know that you give it to us for our benefit, and we pray that you would now feed us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last January, the streaming service Netflix premiered a show about a woman who comes into your house and turns it upside down by just reorganizing every part of it. Uh, Marie Kondo, a Japanese organizing consultant, I mean, what a job. You just go into people's houses and organize stuff. And creator of the Marie method, uh, she visits families to help them organize and tidy up their own homes. She finds out your family's structure, your timely habits, when you wake up and what's the first thing you do when you wake up, what it's like to send your kids off to school maybe, or, or how your home life is like at night after a meal or during a meal. And she looks at the, the needs of your own kitchen and closets and then goes to work on organizing and arranging and often throwing out by simplifying many things in your life. And it just blows people's minds. I mean, that's the, that's the whole joy of watching this show is, is people just have a clutter in their life. And by organizing different things in a different way, they realize that, hey, breakfast isn't that bad. Or my closet isn't that stressful when I throw out a hundred of the 5,000 shirts that I have. But here's the thing. Uh, you're going to hear things like this and say, oh, wow, that's just like Jesus to us where you just put things in the right order, good things in the right order. You know, you have this Christian activity here or this book collection there, or if you wake up at this time and with the right amount of coffee and do a certain thing, then you can have your life organized in a Christian way. But in contrast to how we organize our lives or even pay a consultant to organize our own lives, God actually tells us something different. And here's the difference that our scriptures show us. To live your life, it's not about organizing the things around you, but to, to fully and truly live your life in a God-glorifying manner, it's to put Jesus at the center of it. So Jesus wants his church to live in a certain way. For several paragraphs now in our passage or in our book, Paul has been speaking to a church that has been infiltrated from, from the outside in something that is called syncretism, where you take something good and then in a good way, or at least 
in the attempts of a good way, you just try to pile on good things on top of it. But rather, what our scriptures are pointing out to is that actually by piling on things on top of a good thing, you actually diminish that original good thing, and that is who Jesus is. Basically, adding up seemingly good spiritual things for an even better life is exactly what this this church was guilty of, rather than keeping the main thing, the main thing, or rather than keeping the focus on Jesus himself, and rather just being okay with worshiping the Lord of lords and the King of kings. At the root of the gospel, God's people receive God's grace, and this is without anything that man has done for themselves. God in his mercy saves people, and, and his people are, were in great need of his own saving work. They were in great need of him actually coming into their lives and, and remaking their soul. Not by just adding maybe a good hairdo or a great outfit, but from the inside out, man was seen as distant from God or unholy or unrighteous or, as our scriptures say, just sinful or separate. And so God in his love actually wanted to draw men and women close to him, and he did this by sending his son, Christ Jesus, our Bible tells us. He sent his son to actually die on the cross and to live as men and women should have lived. You and I should have lived holy and perfect lives. If you think about what Adam and Eve were to do at the beginning, they were to obey the Lord. They were to own the earth or subdue the earth. They were not to listen to anything other than what God says, but they sinned. And as great, 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 many great grandchildren, we, like our great ancestors, do just the same. We were born in sin and we actively sin. And so God in his grace came to save us from our sins, but also came to save us from the wrath that God would rightly pour out on those who are enemies of him. But, but the incredible thing that our scriptures show us is that when the Son of God came, and, and you have to imagine how great that would have looked, that the most perfect and righteous man in the world came and showed up, how did people act towards him? Well, they hated him. They found him like a menace. They found him like a tyrant. They found him someone who was supposed to help them, but rather was dragging them down. And so they put Jesus on a mock trial after capturing him, trying to, trying to hoodwink him in, a, in his own way. They put him on trial, and then they hung him on a cross, and they let him die there to where they then took him down and put him in a tomb. Now what's shocking about this is not only the, the physical significance of what happened, where Jesus actually died in our place, where, where he was hanging on what, where we should have hung, where he lived like we should have lived, and he was living as a, as a sub or as a substitute or as someone who replaced the life that you and I had, but also on top of what physically happened was the spiritual significance that occurred where Jesus, God the Son, was sent and delivered by the Father in order to save his people but also to remake them. Not knowing what these enemies of God were truly doing, God's enemies handed over the perfect sacrifice to atone or to pay off the debt for the sins of God's people. Meaning Jesus was the perfect substitute for me and for you. This is exactly why we worship him. This is why we want to fall down on our faces. This is why we humbly submit ourselves to whatever he says we should do. We eagerly want to do it because he did how we should have lived and he lived out how we should have wanted to live. Jesus didn't just die 
we see in our text, but he was raised from the dead. And in continuing to live the life that we should have lived, he then told his disciples or those who would follow after him that he was going to leave, but it was actually in their benefit that Jesus would leave the earth because he was going to send his spirit to guide and direct these followers from the inside out. So not only does Jesus change your heart, but now he sends his spirit to guide and direct your heart. And so our text today, we have the answer in many ways of what that looks like. How does God intend for us to be guided or to be ruled? We see our desire to be ruled or guided as as an after occurrence of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Us being guided or being ruled by the Spirit, us living a godly life, isn't so that Jesus will love us more because Jesus on the cross actually justified us, declaring to the world that these people, God's people, are gods, and they won't face God's wrath. So on the other side of the cross, if you will, reflecting back towards the cross, we see that our text shows us the joy and the path of how we get to live. Last week's sermon was about Paul telling us a certain way to live, and he did this by telling us what to shake off or what to put off or using the analogy of clothes by what we would strip off when we come into the house muddy. And today is the second step. How should we live? Well, we should put off what is sinful, God says, but now we are to see that we are to put on these good things or these good activities. We're to put on Christ himself. We're to make him the center of our lives. We're to make him the attempt of our aspiration. So, so here in our text, when we just break it down bit by bit, and we're going to dive into bits and pieces of it individually, what I think we see is if we put off the sinful ways. Now we put on these new steps. And these steps, I think, are four steps to make Christ the center of our lives. So if you're using an outline, there are four different marks with four different openings to fill in the words. And what these items on the page hopefully encourage you to do, not only to take notes so you pay attention and stay awake, but also to help you think through this text. And what are the steps, what are these four steps that God wants us to do? in order to make Jesus the center of our lives. Under the understanding of we are called by Christ and we should live a Christ-centered life, the first way or the first step that we can take is to put on the character. Put on the character of Christ. Looking at Colossians 3, verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So Paul reminds Christians, and then he instructs them. So within this first part of your outline, Paul reminds Christians of who they are, and then he instructs them. Now what I mean by him reminding them is he wants them to first understand, before he tells them what to do, of who they actually are. So let's examine what God has done for them and to them. First, we see that God chose them. God chose them. We all know what it means to be chosen. We all know what it means to be selected. Maybe many of us know what it means to not be selected for something. And then we finally get selected for something. And the joy that comes into your life when you were chosen in that third grade dodgeball team, this euphoric praise of I'm accepted by someone in my homeroom class. Here the God of the universe, before you ever 
did anything wrong on your own. Chose you. Now, two-thirds of the time in the New Testament, this word is translated as elect. God elected them, or he chose them. Being elect means being chosen. Being chosen by God is, is, I think, the most comforting promise in our whole life. It's a promise of his initiated love, his captivating or his wooing, effective affection towards us. We who were once far off, undeserving of anything good in our lives, we have been selected or elected or chosen. Remember what's written about in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God didn't save Israel because they were mighty or because there were a lot of them or because they could do a lot of things for God, but he simply chose Israel because he loved Israel. And here we see that when God chooses people, it's because he loves them. So before Paul tells them what they need to put on, he just reminds them who they are. The chosen people of God. Second, he, he says that they were set apart. This is what Paul means when he says that they were holy. So as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, he was, they were set apart. Because we have trusted in Christ for salvation, we are set apart from the world, but also on the team of God. We were recognized by God as his holy chosen ones. And this is an outcome of the sovereignty and the loving work of God's salvific purposes in their lives. We belong completely to him. We were chosen and we were set apart, but also we were loved, it says. In the Old Testament accounts where God calls his people, uh, it says it's because he chose them and set them apart for his glory. But after this, we see, especially in Deuteronomy 7, that he calls them not only chosen, not only set apart, but he calls them his treasured possession, his beloved. One of the most wonderful ways that you can ever talk to someone is by calling them your beloved. Your identity as an active bringing in of their own identity. So he chose them, he set them apart, he loved them, but also here we see in verse 13 and 14 later on, he forgave them. God's forgiveness is complete and final. It's not conditional or partial. He didn't somewhat forgive them, and then if they live a good life, then he will totally forgive them. Or for many of you who might come from a, from a Catholic background where, where God loves you, but if you live a really, really good life, then he really, really loves you. Or after you pass away, if enough people pray for you, or if you're really good in purgatory, then he really, really loves you, and you're with the saints of the old. That's not in the scriptures. What is in the scriptures is that you were chosen, set apart, loved, and completely forgiven. And then God, through Paul, tells them now what they get to do. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has forgiven us for Christ's sake and for God's glory. A new person is what, God's ma- is what God makes, we see in this passage. And, and now we're called to live new lives. So here is where Paul not only identifies who these people were, but now he identifies and, and what he is telling them to do and how to live a godly life or how to live a life at all. He tells them first to put on. Now there are several put-ons here. Put on compassion. And there in verse 12, it tells them to put on compassion. The identity of the Christian is one who is to display tender feelings of compassion towards one another. Jesus didn't seek, remember, the powerful or the prideful. He didn't seek the noble. 
And he certainly didn't change them into that. But rather, he is calling people to be compassionate just as he was compassionate. Remember how low Jesus had to stoop in order to bring you up to him. And he's telling us to live in the same way. Paul is also telling us in this church to put on not only compassion, but kindness. God in Christ was kind to us. Christ among people was very kind. You think about the miracles that Jesus did in all of his life or, or the compassion that he showed towards others or even the ultimate sacrifice that he gave towards people who were evil or sinful or fall removed. He was just being kind to them. He saw a sick person and out of kindness he healed them. And so Jesus is calling us through this writer to be kind people as a church. Third, he called them to be humble or to have humility, or to show a humbleness in mind. Like professional wrestling today, so now I have your attention. Like professional wrestling today, the pagan world admired pride in this false idea of domination. But Jesus is the greatest example of, the, of humility and humbleness in mind. In the church, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. If I ever become puffed up and thinking I'm so awesome, I need to remind myself of who gave me this mind altogether. Or maybe I'm in a place of power where I can decide this thing or that thing. I need to remember who put me in that place altogether. If I ever am tempted to lord over someone or to oppress someone for my own benefit, I need to remind myself of who Jesus was, and to put on his nature and his character. Paul says to put on Christ-likeness, which is humility. Also, he says to put on meekness. Meekness is not weakness, you've probably heard. It's power under control. That's what meekness is. It's power under control. It's often paralleled in the New Testament with gentleness. As the opposite of acting in anger, it's the opposite of a behavior that we see in verse 8. So we're to put on meekness and humility and kindness and compassion, but also patience, or literally having a long temper. When a person is patient, they can put up with provoking people or circumstances without retaliating. It's wrong to get angry quickly. Now, it's right to get angry at the right things. We, we actually see Jesus doing this. It's right to be angry at, at people or instances that defame God, that should stir up a boil inside of you to where you don't like that, to where actually you hate hateful things because it defames the Lord. But our scriptures also say we should have a long temper when this happens. It's wrong to get angry quickly at wrong things for the wrong reasons. So he tells them these, these five things that they are to put on. And, and in many ways, this is the counter of the ten things that he told them previously. So at, towards the beginning of this chapter, Paul tells them to put off these sinful actions. And some of them are violent or uh, powerful or they bring down whole relationships. And what Paul is doing here is showing them five ways that within a church, you and I can bring greater glory to God himself. We ought to be people who are compassionate towards one another. We ought to be people who are kind towards one another. We ought to be people who are humble towards one another and meek towards one another and patient towards one another because the outside world is not only trying to get in and infiltrate us, but many of the outside world is watching. And they want to see 
why are all those people coming together on a Sunday morning? And then why do they bicker and hate each other all week long? And what Paul is doing is showing, here's a way to live. Put on these things. But he also goes on, as if this list wasn't good enough, he goes on to tell them more things that they should put on. He says in verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. After listing the virtues that are to characterize this new humanity or your new self or you on the other side of the cross, Paul provides the means through which such virtues can be practiced. So how do I become meek or humble or patient? Paul says, bear with one another. Not go off to the woods for the rest of your life and try to become perfect or more sanctified or more glorious, but rather to continue to live amongst or live within the church and bear with one another. You know, they always teach you in marriage classes. Well, hopefully they teach you in marriage classes that when two sinful people come together, it doesn't make things perfect. But rather when two sinful people come together, guess what they really know how to do? They know how to be sinful towards one another who they love. Like you promise someone on an altar in front of all of your friends, I'm going to love you and be patient with you. But man, when their alarm goes off one minute before yours, it's like, what is wrong with you? But through living with one another, we are being sharpened by one another to the point where we learn to bear with one another and to forgive one another. So the activities of having forbearance or being patient or being meek is an outcome because we recognize that we should have never been forgiven. But in God's grace, he did forgive us. And as a reaction towards God's grace to us, we need to become forgiving people. And we need to be people who bear with one another because they, like us, are in constant need of God's grace. And he says in verse 14, and above all these things, so all the five things and then the two things, he says, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, remember the metaphor that's been brought to us through this word. We're to strip off or to take off the clothing that is sinfulness, and then we are to put on a t-shirt or a robe or a jacket that is love which binds everything together, almost trapping everything in. Put on love, he says. This is the most important of the Christian virtues. It acts like a belt that ties all the other virtues together. All of the spiritual qualities Paul has named are aspects of Christ's love to us. This is why he ought to be the center of our lives. We ought to focus on how he is humble, how he is meek, how he is patient, how he forgave us. And it allows us to put everything in their rightful place. In parallel to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul expresses his conviction that love is best understood in the operation of the church. And we all know the lesson that we learned when we were little. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. And here's all the people. So when we want to become godly or grow in Christ's likeness, what Paul has the mindset of is the people that we have in this room We are to forgive and be patient and to put on Christ-likeness. Love ruling in our lives is the outcome of keeping Jesus at our center. 
this ongoing process of becoming a Christ-like servant happens by God's grace through the Spirit. So we ought to remember the work that God has done in our lives that we see in verse 12. And with these truths, we are moved to obey Him from the inside out. So that before, where we needed to put to death the heart issue that is in our lives, now we are to put in our heart that is who, the one who remade it all together. So because we are called to Christ, we are called to live Christ-centered lives, and we do this by putting on the character of God. Secondly, we do this by putting on the peace of God. Paul here moves from character to conduct. Because of God's initiated work, peace ought to rule us. That's the language that's being conveyed here. Look at verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts or rule your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Having peace doesn't ignore the fallen world. Having peace doesn't ignore that hurtful things happen. Having peace doesn't ignore that life seems to be a wreck. But we should still have it rule our hearts, keeping everything at a proper perspective and following Jesus in obedience. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see where we can take this teaching from in another place. For he himself is our peace. That is Jesus. Jesus is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he became peace to us. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. So by Jesus dying on the cross that shows us what peace looks like in a spiritual manner, but also we're to have peace rule in our hearts. If we disrupt this peace in the body or in the church of Christ, we're actually disrupting the work of Christ's effect on the cross altogether. So we must be attentive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 tells us. We ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the church of Christ. Because we are reflections of his peace-giving glory. Now, how do we have the peace rule in our hearts? Well, the, the, this, the understanding of what this word means is to have it rule in our hearts, much like an umpire or a referee would rule something in a game where they not only uphold the rules or direct the ways that people ought to play the game, but also they ought to hand out the trophies at the end of the game. It's experienced as we engage ourselves and the things above. Remember this passage assumes that we are already carrying out the teaching that Paul gave us where we are to set our minds on the things above. Only a mind that is spiritual or new or focused on Christ can receive peace from God. Romans chapter 8 verses 5 and 6 say, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In its experience, as we, gauge, as we engage in thankful prayer, Paul tells us to be thankful. When we are thankful, no doubt we are reminding us of who is not only in charge, but what that person in charge is doing for us. He makes the connection of thankfulness as being an outcome of understanding who is administering the peace within our own hearts. He actually says there that peace with God in Philippians chapter 4, peace with God in our hearts guards us from things that aren't true. So we ought to have the peace of God rule in our hearts. We ought to be people who fight for peace within our church, within our relationships. And it comes as we follow the teachings as the example of the apostles. Now how wonderful it would be 
for our churches all around us and our families all amongst us if professing Christians would adorn themselves with such qualities as the character of Christ and the peace of God. And what Jesus is saying to us through Paul is that this can happen. When we set our minds on the things above, when we identify ourselves in Christ, where we put off the things of the flesh and put on the nature of Jesus or the character of Jesus, we can have peace within our relationships. We can have things like humility and peace amongst us or patience amongst us. So we're to put on the peace of Christ. Third, we're to put on the word of Christ. Third, we're to put on the word of Christ. This means, of course, the word of God. This means that we're to be guided by God's Word. False teachers came to this church with their new traditions, their new rules, their new competing philosophies. But guess what they didn't bring to this church? They didn't bring God's Word to this church that he was writing to. They tried to synchronize God's Word with their own words. And remember what Paul says. He says, don't listen to them. Don't even acknowledge it. Don't play with it. Don't be tempted by it because God's Word uniquely magnifies Jesus and those other things de-emphasize Jesus. And the same word gives us life and sustenance and strengthens us. So what Paul says is we ought to put on the word of Christ, meaning we are to subscribe to it or place our thoughts towards it or to consume it or was written about in the Old Testament. It's as if we ought to eat it to where it becomes and changes us. The Word will transform our lives if we permit it to dwell in us richly. The text says that the Word must dwell in us richly, or the word dwell means to feel at home. You know, if you go to a dwelling place, or if your home is like a dwelling place where you just feel, not home is where the heart is, but actually home is where you feel rest. You feel where you can be you. And here we're asked or we're told by Paul to have the word dwell in us richly. Paul directed this to the entire church body. So this isn't something just for parents. This isn't something just for elders, or just for Sunday school teachers, or just for the Bereans in the church, or just for the really you know, mentally astute people, but rather this is to the entire church that we ought to let the word of Christ dwell amongst us richly. And, and it's amazing what he says and how this can happen. I pray that we will be people who read, study, and meditate on God's word. But one of the amazing things of how this can happen is by how we express God's word. This is what shows how the word dwells in us richly by our expressions of it. Now there is, according to Paul, a definite relationship between the word of God and how we express it. The intake of the word ought to show itself by the outcome of what we do with it. And, and how Paul does this is he says, we recognize of what the word looks like going in by how you sing it. So in your translation, you might have like mine where, where it says that the word of Christ dwells in you richly singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs or, or teaching one another teaching and admonishing one another, and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But I am convinced that, that the proper translation of this text actually says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What I mean by all that is whenever we try to examine the Bible, there are just tools that we have that we can read it well. 
So one of the first things that you ought to do when you read a passage of Scripture or a verse is you ought to look for the verbs. So taking you all the way back to the language studies that you really wish you could forget in fifth grade. You look for the words in the text. And within this text, the words are teaching and admonishing and singing. And these words aren't isolated. These verbs aren't isolated. These, words are, these verbs are unique and that they are telling people to do something. So we ought to respond to this text by recognizing that we ought to be taught. We ought to be admonished and we ought to sing. But there are other words in this text that tell us exactly how we ought to do those. And those are called participles. As if this English lesson by non an English major could get any worse. There are verbs and then there are participles. And these participles modify these words. So how are we to be taught? How are we to be admonished? Paul tells us you're to be taught and admonished by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You might be tempted to think that you ought to sing just psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it's not just the verb or the action of singing, but rather you must be taught and admonished through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This no doubt changes the way that you and I would study the Bible. This no doubt changes the way that you and I would be putting on the words of Christ. This no doubt changes how we are heard by others when we try to be a teaching church or an admonishing church or a Bible church. You know a church is a teaching church by listening to their words. Not my words, but our words. Proclaiming the truths of the gospel with our mouths at the top of our lungs. These psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, psalms is no doubt what we would see in the Old Testament as the book of psalms. Now, some churches, they only sing the psalms. They have a book, and it's just chapters 1 through 50 of the book of psalms, and that's what they sing. They put it to metrical forms, and that's what they sing. But also, we see here that we're to sing hymns. Now, this is controversial. Hymns were songs of praise to God written by believers that were not in the Psalms. So what is a hymn? A great controversy of our day, maybe even within our own church. What is a hymn? A hymn is a song that is from a hymnal. That's what makes it a hymn. A hymn is a song from a hymnal. What is a hymnal? A hymnal is a collection of songs. That's why 500 years ago, we can find, and even in this church, we have German hymnals, where some of you apparently know German because you've taken those hymnals home and you might sing with them in a devotional way. But then 50 years later, they published English versions. And then even two years ago, I bought a new hymnal where there are new songs in this, but they're still hymns because they're songs within a hymnal and they're a collection of songs. And so we sing them with joy. We did that this morning, but also there are spiritual songs. And the spiritual songs are a little bit different because spiritual songs are with others and view, but with Jesus as the end. So you might think of Africans who came to America aboard a slave ship who are trying to remind themselves of there is a Savior who is coming for them, but they are reminding other people next to them who were there smashed together on a ship. They are reminding them of this God, but they are singing to God. These are called spiritual songs. So what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to be taught and admonished through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And when we do this, we sing with thankfulness. I hope that makes sense. For if the word is to dwell in us richly, we should know it. And when we know it, 
when we re- not just the words, but when we really feel it and when we know it, we sing at the top of our lungs. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and earthly mild, God and sinners reconciled. You can't sing that maybe without crying or with getting a lump in your throat because you recognize that an undeserving race was brought, the very Son of God Himself, knowing that He would be sacrificed and ruined for their sake. But now they're reconciled. When you know the truths of the Scripture, you can sing it at the top of your lungs. Our singing must be for the sake of us teaching our hearts and teaching and admonishing those around us the goodness of God. This is what it looks like to to live. This is what it looks like to walk. This doesn't mean that anything other than we should be singing in a graceful way. It, It takes grace to sing when we are in pain. It takes grace to sing when we are overjoyed. It takes grace for Paul and Silas to sing when they're in the midst of prison in this jail where they write to others and they tell others that they are singing of God's glory and God's grace. Our singing must not be a display of fleshly talent, but it must be a demonstration of the grace of God in our hearts coming out verbally. The best form of worship within the church never has a spotlight on an instrument. It never has a spotlight on a singer. But what we see in the apocalyptic passages of the book of Revelation, that the singing within the church is best understood as having a spotlight on Jesus himself. If we were at a concert, there would be one light. And actually, it wouldn't be on him. We see in the book of Revelation, it would be from him. Of our lives are lit up like the sky. So there are some implications of this when we think about singing. I wanted to hone in on this specifically, not because it's controversial in our church, but just because, you know, what generation hasn't had a worship war? Everyone has. You know what they wanted to do with Luther when he wrote a new hymn? They wanted to kill him. And that was 500 years ago. And now his song is known as really old. So what are the implications of this for our own lives? It means that what is sung must have at its purpose to teach and admonish. Now, we're not always going to get it right. Sometimes I request a song uh, from Cheryl and Kyla as they put together a service, and I'm thinking as I'm singing that song, I don't know why I picked this one. It didn't have anything to do with the service. But we ought to have at our focus teaching and instruction within what we sing. It means that whenever we sing, or preach for that matter, we are to teach something. Oftentimes, when you're in pain, when you're in suffering, what comes to your mind most quickly is a song that you know rather than a passage that you memorized. And so you better have those songs that you know mean something. It means that when we are taught and admonished by biblical songs, we are building up a greater capacity to live through the regular rhythms of life. The suffering, the joy, the death, the birth, the wandering, the waiting. How long, O Lord, David said. And it was a song. It means that if Christ-centered worship teaches and admonishes us to love and to live out the word of Christ that richly dwells within us, then the other side of this is that self-centered, me-centered worship encourages drifting away from the gospel altogether. If we keep Jesus at our focus in our worship, then what this text says is that we are being built up 
and if we focus on everything else in our lives or try to organize everything else, then we will slowly drift away because we are keeping our eyes off of him. It also means that, that churches and pastors and leaders need to give thought to how the musical portion of worship can serve as teaching and admonishing the truth once delivered to all the saints. And I'm, I'm more than happy to say that this is done by other people than me in this church. So what Cheryl does and what Kyla does for like three and a half hours every Wednesday is they examine the text and they look at songs that are part of the text so that when we walk away on a Sunday morning, we not only understand the text, but we can put emotion to it through our song. They don't just want filler language between songs. They want verses between songs. They want verses that connect this song to the next song that, so that we, when we approach the very truth of God, we've already reminded ourselves of it or be built up towards it. And so when I say that churches and pastors and leaders need to give thought to this, I praise the Lord that we have two women who do, and they give so much of themselves to it to where the point they are probably very, very tired once they actually sing the songs. I've thought about this all week long, and praise God they have. It means that content is primary, and there will and should be a variety of music with no style mandated. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs have nothing to do with style of music, but rather the linguistic content. So this morning, we have something that feels like it was in the territorial days of us singing. And this is good. Some days we have just a piano. Some days we have a lot of instruments. Some days we have a tampered down instruments. And some days we have big, loud music. Oftentimes, there are just strings in the psalms. Oftentimes, there are loud, clanging noises. None of us know what that means, so we have drums. But either way, the church is musically talented, but the church must desire content. We are to put on the word of Christ. And what we see in the Bible is that our God loves us to respond to him by his own word through our worship. And so we sing truth with thanks. Because we are called to Christ, we are called to live Christocentric lives. And this happens when we center, on the, when we center the word in our own lives. Lastly and quickly, Fourth, put on the name of Christ. Put on the character of Christ. Put on the word of Christ. Put on the name of Christ. You ever notice how big of a deal names are to new parents? Like they spend months thinking about new names. You know what happens after six months into their baby being born? They just don't care about the name anymore. It's just who the kid is. Names in the Bible were a big deal. Often during Old Testament days, God changed a person's name because of some important experience or some new development in their lives. How we are known by our name is a big deal. And as Christians, we actually have a different new name. It's the most important name. We actually bear the name of Christ. The word Christian is found only three times in the entire New Testament. But the name is given originally as a term of contempt, but gradually it becomes a name of honor. The name of Christ is an identification of ownership. That is, we belong to Jesus, and so we bear his name, but it's also authoritative, like how you might sign a check where money can legally be withdrawn from your bank, or how a president signs his name to a bill, officially making it a new law. It's the name of Jesus Christ that we have the authority to pray. It's that we have, by this, the authority to be heard, it's by his name that we have hope. It's by his name that we have love because Christ Jesus is God. He has died for us. We have the authority to bear his name. 
Again, here, Paul, with thanksgiving in mind, whatever we do in the name of Christ ought to be joined with thanksgiving to who he is, what he has done, and what he tells us to do. When we remember that Paul was a Roman prisoner, and when he wrote this letter, it makes the emphasis on thanksgiving all the much more wonderful because he bears the name of Jesus. One time I went to a historically African-American church, and, and just the way that traditional African-American preachers speak is something to just stand back and marvel at. I'll never forget one time when one of them stood there, and I don't want to imitate him because, I, because I can't, I'm really bad at imitating people, but he said, I want to preach to you in the name. And that's all he said, and everyone knew what he meant. As we review these four spiritual motivations of living a godly life, we are impressed with the centrality of Jesus Christ. We ought to keep him at the center. We forgive because Christ forgave. We have peace because Christ brought peace. We should long for his word to dwell in us richly because he is the word. And we ought to bear his name because he is Christ in all. Because we are called to Christ, we are called to live Christocentric lives. In conclusion, to illustrate at least one of these points, but hopefully all of them together, I I want to tell you a story about when I lived in Washington, D.C. for just a brief period of time. But while I was there, I randomly, circumstantially, started going to this church on Capitol Hill. And I only went there because it was a nice-looking brick church. And I was so tired of going to churches and, like, garages and, you know, tin buildings and all that stuff. So I just wanted to go to this great, nice brick church. Didn't know anything about it when I walked in. I was so overwhelmed, though, at the worship service that this church had. It had great preaching. It had wonderful fellowship. But the thing that stuck out to me more than anything else is just the overwhelming, loud, masculine singing. At the time, it was just 650 people. Now it's over 1,000 people. And I've been there recently, and they still sing their guts out. These are, these are men in power suits who do not care how they sound. They don't care that they don't know the words. They're singing the truths of the gospel so that everyone inside and outside of this building can hear. And I was so struck at how these people sang. So I went up to one of the pastors afterwards. You know, they have the pastors at the different doors that catch you on the way out. And I went up to him, and I told him why I was there. I was an intern in town, and, you know, I just moved here, and blah, blah, blah. And he, he asked me, you know, what did you think of the worship service this morning? How did it speak to you? And I was like, honestly, I wasn't even listening to the sermon because I was so overwhelmed about how loud people sang. Like, how long have you guys been singing that loud, and what makes you guys sing that loud? And I will never forget what he said. He said, I don't know why everyone else in this room sings as loud as they do, but I'll tell you why I do. I sing as loud as I do because there are widows in this church who need to be reminded of the heaven where their husband is. The truth that we remind ourselves of and that we echo in the rooms around us. They were singing the name of Christ. They were singing the words of Christ. They were singing of the peace accomplished on the cross of Christ all because they knew and aimed to bring on the character of Christ in their lives. Friend, we are called by Christ, and we are called to live Christocentric lives. Paul tells us to put off, and here he tells us to put on. And if you're wondering of a way to live this day and forevermore, the best way to live is to put on the nature and character of Christ. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come to you this morning with great admiration of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray in humility in asking that you will build us up, that you will transform our hearts, that you will make us like your Son, that you will remind us and empower us of who you are, that your Spirit would guide us and direct us to where we really hate sin and really love your Son. May he be the focus of our lives. May he be the instrument of our joy. We pray this in his name. Amen.